Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Hey everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Great to have you with us again for another edition of the V8 Salute podcast powered by Repco. Before we get into the guest on this episode, which of course is Gary Rogers, I wanted to tell you quickly about something special, our V8 Sleuth Open Night at Bathurst. It's on the Thursday night at the National Motor Racing Museum. It's a motorsport chat night. We've had these before with special guests, Dick Johnson, Brad Jones, Glenn Seaton. This year, Steve Richards and Jack Perkins are our guests. Of course, both have driven for Gary over the course of time. Richo, a winner in the GRM run Monaro in the Bathurst 24-hour. Tickets are limited. They're selling pretty fast, over two-thirds sold out. Head to the Eventbrite website, or if you can't find those details, have a look at V8 Sleuth to order your tickets because it's limited to just 120 seats. Quick one too, our new Bathurst 90s book is out now. A photo of every car from every great race from 1990 to 1999. Yes, it includes the Super Tourers as well, so there's plenty of GRM cars in there for everyone to be entertained by. Photo of every car. There's never been a Bathurst book like it. Grab your copy now from bookshop.v8salute.com.au. Now, the guest this week is Gary Rogers. I had a great chat with Gaz out at GRM very recently, and he shared, well, all sorts of stuff. Sometimes a little bit more than I asked for, but you never know what you're going to get with Gaz. There were plenty of stories from his time in racing on four wheels and four hooves as well. We talk about his early driving career, about the establishment and progression of Gary Rogers Motorsport, the young drivers that came through the team over the years, the Nations Cup Monaros, the Volvos, the nicknames, and there's plenty of those with GRM staff and drivers. We talk about memorabilia thanks to our mates at the Motorsport Trader, and Gary tackles your National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer Questions and the V8 Sleuth Top 10 Shootout. So here we go, buckle up, it's time to start. Gary Rogers on the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco. Gary Rogers, hello and welcome. Uh, thank you for having us here at GRM on the V8 well, Sleuth Aaron, Podcast. You are always, you're one of the few that are always very welcome. Oh, stop it. Oh, stop it. Only a few. <laughs> who else is on that list, by the way? Anybody? I, no? didn't, I don't want to mention too many, oh, but you, you know who we're talking okay. about. Okay. Um, Mate, we've been asked so many times by so many people, when are we getting you on the podcast? And we thought for the podcast with your good self that we would turn into a video podcast right. as well. So we're filming this one. So Without it, with it interrupting, you're well aware that I haven't got a clue what a podcast is, right? That's completely fine. So analog. Okay, <laughs> continue. Right. Half of the guests that have been on this podcast have no idea what a podcast is. So you're among friends. You're among friends. Mate, tell me. You have such a ripping sense of humour, the, the dress-ups, the fun that you've had over the years in racing and away from racing. But where does the sense of humour come from? Is that from your parents? Was there someone when you were younger that influenced you to see the bright side of life? Where did this whole thing come from for you? Um, well, look, I just like fun. Like my dad was a sort of – my father was an SP bookmaker. He had a whole lot of fun people, sort of ordinary heads that people would call them. They were bloody good people. Those sort of people have got a bit of humour in their life. They've got stories to tell and I think interesting stories which create a bit of humour in themselves. Um, and I don't know, I just like to sort of, uh, you know, rather than just waffle about things, if you can create a bit of humour and give people a bit of fun, 
then to me, you've done something pretty good. It's hard to pick one. Your dress-ups, your grid stuff. I tried to put together a top five before I came to see uh-huh. you. And in no particular order, right. and there's probably a few I've left out here. Right. ABBA, of course, the Volvo deal was great for you because you had a whole pile of new dress-ups to do. Yep. The sauna on the grid, remember yeah, that you brought well, out the sauna? Well, I certainly do remember the sauna. You know where the sauna ended up, don't you? Where is the sauna? Actually, the sauna, now that's a very good story. When we eventually sent some of the componentry back to Sweden when the deal was finalised, um, because everyone over there had very fond memories of me, in certain terms, so I thought we'd um, we sent all the gear in a big container. And this right. is this is the race cars and the parts yeah, and, and all parts that stuff. and yeah. odds and ends, just documentation in general. Well, we had it fully loaded, right, and there was a tiny little bit of space right at the very end. So I thought we'll just squeeze the sauna in there because it had my head on the front of the sauna. And I thought they're going to open. <laughs> they thought I was out of their life by then. Of course, you see. <laughs> of course, Ta-da. when they opened the container, here we were. <laughs> anyway, that's how it was. Did they ever tell you that they found it or they saw it or they just not comment on it? I still bit? talk to quite a few people there, so they found it very, very amusing. <laughs> Monica and Bill wouldn't get a run these days, I don't reckon. Why? Oh, cutting it fine, don't you think? Uh, no. No? It's a fact of life. True. People need to accept things happen. You know, we can all be politically correct to a certain extent, but you've also got to accept the fact that things do happen. And look, if you can't have a look, look, I personally think the mirthful side of that probably lightened it up a bit rather than getting it too serious. Which was your favourite? There's a lot to pick from, but which was your favourite that you thought that was the best one that we did? Uh, probably, I suppose, because we won the Bathurst race, um, Lady Cadiver on the horse. <laughs> That's right. That was probably one of our best. I and also um, Camilla Parker Bowles. I forgot about that when one. When she got a run, that, that was... <laughs> That was quite a good one as well. Who did your outfits? How did you do all that? Did you do all that? Yeah, look, Draffo worked with me. Draffo and I worked together for years and years and years and years, like in the car business and all sorts of things. And, and that's Glenn Draffo. Yeah, Glenn Draffo. He worked at the race team here for he a while. He worked in the and, race team. Yeah. And he's, and like, but he's got a great sense and a shocking wit. Like, he's a terrible, you know, if you think I'm bad politically, correctly wise, give it him a go. Let me tell you right now, he's the best. But anyway, look, we used to conjure them up, think about who was in the news of the day. If it was newsworthy and had a bit of a story attached, then it was worth doing. But we didn't do it just um, to try and make fun of people. We wanted to uh, take the sense of what was happening in the news at the moment and try and make a bit of fun out of that. Was there any that you decided not to do or that were too hard to do? Or that no. You didn't, you didn't get to do it? You didn't, no. You ran out of time? You, you executed every single one that you wanted and to do. And to be quite frank, I'm thinking of doing it again. And I know there'll be certain people in the media and in, in the public arena who say, well, Gary Rogers shouldn't do that. That's sort of in poor taste. Well, bad luck for them because I think there are certain people who consider it to be a bit of lighthearted fun. And, and hey, in today's world, we are lacking a lot of lighthearted fun. So can you give us a hint on where you're thinking of no, doing No, I honestly this? don't know. All right, It'll okay. be a there's, moment. There's no come plan. There'll It'll... be something in the news and I'll think about that and I'll ring draft and I'll say, listen, what do you think about this? And between us, we'll have a couple of beers and waffle a bit of crap and come up with an idea. <laughs> it's very simple stuff, this. Why be difficult? Why make it hard? Why make exactly. it hard? Yes. There's so enough people trying to do that. True. That's true. We're surrounded by cool history here at GRM. I mean, where we're sitting right now, there's trophies, there's model cars, there's a a real supercar just over our shoulder here, one of the last ZB Commodores. 
there's a, there's an engine, there's trophies, there's champagne bottles that I think are empty. I'm presuming that they're empty anyway. What was the start for you of, of racing? Why did you start doing it? What got you into it? Oh, well, I started in – I mean, I'm well, what my first job was I used to muck around with horses. I used to break a few horses in and ride horses and have fun with horses. And my brother ended up – we were at Marsland College in Campbell. He was five years older than I was. He went off to uh, university to medicine, and I was poking around my horse, and my mum said to my dad, you can't do that. Gary's got to get a proper job. The only other thing that really – actually, I'd nearly, I nearly became a plumber. Imagine really? Me, imagine me in the dunnies. <laughs> Anyway, so I did a mechanics apprenticeship at at Neil's Trucks in Port Melbourne as a diesel mechanic, and during the course of that, I was always interested in car racing, and I sort of followed it, and then uh, got my first early model Holden racing car, raced that car at Winton, and um, had a bit of success, and it just went from there. So it was a, it was a humpy Holden. It was a humpy, yeah. OL606. Oh. It was a ro- road-resistant car. <laughs> Pardon me. How's the memory? I mean, I it, it's, 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 as, it's as much today as it was yesterday. And, and what are we talking back then? Are we talking just some mates coming and helping you run yeah, this car? Yeah, a guy called fun? Russell Brown, who was a really good friend of mine, um, his dad had a business called White Horse Industries and they're metal spinners. We used to use his old workshop at the back and poke around with the thing and get it to go and something break, you'd fix it and you'd keep going. And um, Barry's mum, Beverly, um, um, sort of Russell Brown, his girlfriend, Beverly and I were the, the team. We got the car to go. We won a, oh, We didn't win a lot. We won a race here and there and had a lot of fun. And, of course, um, just really enjoyed it. And I think that's what really got me hooked on it. Pardon me. It wasn't so much the actual racing itself. It was the sort of association with people you'd have a bit of fun with. Yeah. The social aspect, the yeah, it wasn't up that, and the- fun, It wasn't actually being social in those days was sitting under the gum tree drinking a long neck. Hey? Seriously. <laughs> that's what race. it was. After the race? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. I thought so. I thought so. And at that time, you're not thinking this is a career or a life's body of work. This is a bit of fun. Yes, it, yes, because it wasn't really a career in motorsport back then. There was only, I mean, you had Frank Maddage and Neil Allen and those sort of people and probably the Gagan brothers, but really it wasn't a defining moment in life where you could say, well, look, I want to make a career out of this. Probably 10 years after that, it, it had got that way, but by then I was starting to establish my car business and um, that was taking a lot of time and also I'd start poking around with harness racing horses. I was doing a bit of that. So you'd have to say that whilst I enjoyed doing it, I probably wasn't committed mm. enough to jeopardise – or not even jeopardise, but put everything else a little bit aside and devote the time that you would have to to do it properly. What started the car dealership stuff? Is Was there a wheeler and dealer gene in you from in the early days? Um well, when I was doing my apprenticeship, I started at Neil's Trucks, and then I finished at Coffees in Ringwood, who were Ford dealers. And there was a fellow there, Alf Newton, who was a used car manager, and I was doing the last second two years of the last two years of my apprenticeship there. And I got talking to him, and I watched what they did, and I saw these people coming in buying all the old bombs on the back rows, and I'd see these cars being disappearing and going, and, and I thought, well, someone's obviously doing something with these, and sort of. So I sort of smoked the ground and worked out where they went and who was getting them. And so I started to buy a couple of those from Elf and other car dealers while I was still doing my apprenticeship. And then I got a little um, little car yard in Whitehorse Road in Nunawadding and I had my first car yard there. Um, just really was only a handful of cars and trying to make a couple of bob because by that stage I was racing my car and I needed money to, to do that. And also I'd sort of had my minor involvement in harness racing, albeit small at that stage, 
I just needed some funds and I was never going to make the right amount of funds that I needed by being an apprentice motor mechanic. So that's pretty much how it started. Harness racing. So are we talking owning, training, driving? What was the, the, the Gary link there? Well, as I say, as a young person, I was always riding horses and being involved with horses. And um, then, um, Ron, do you remember Ron Wannels? Or would you know yeah, Ron? Yeah, anyway, totally. Ron yeah, Wannels yeah. had a harness racing business in Queensland. Yeah, I raced with him. Yeah. Anyway, what happened? Um, he rang me one Saturday afternoon. He said, could I go to Mooney Valley? He was in Queensland with his horses, and I was down here, but not with horses at this stage. And he said, uh, look, I've got a horse racing tonight. Um, he said, uh, can you go to Mooney Valley and back it for me? I, I bought it from a bloke in Miner's Rest. Which is up Ballarat. In Ballarat. Yeah. And I said, oh, yeah. So anyway, I went out and I backed the horse, and the horse actually won. While I'm watching the race, there's people there talking about this horse. And anyway, when it was all over, I went over and I said, do you know something about that horse? And they said, oh, yeah, we sold that horse to a bloke called Ron Wallace in Queensland about a week ago. I said, oh, yeah, that's right. Anyway, to cut a long story short, these people were just knockabout family people, and I thought they were sort of not bad people. Anyway, I said to them, look, I wouldn't mind any harness racing horse and going harness racing down here. If I got one, would you be able to look after it for me? Anyway, look, this could take days. But one thing led to another, you know, three or four months later. I didn't hear from them for ages. The next thing, they rang me, they'd said, I've got a horse for me, which was called Dolan Gold. And feeling it was a donkey. <laughs> it was a good old horse, but it could, it could barely run. But anyway, so it actually did win a race, and that really just started to get me hooked. And by then, I'm sort of because I, as I say, always loved the horse thing, uh, and so that 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 then led to another thing. And then the the Wilson people came from Miner's Rest. I bought my farm where I still currently live. I mean, this all took a period of time, but um, they moved down, and um, uh, <laughs> then I went to the sales to buy a horse and bought ten. <laughs> so so any, any, the bugs. Anyway, bitten, the that's bugs right. Bitten. Anyway, yeah. look, I went, but of course by then I'm helping Bob Wilson doing the training, <clears throat> and I thought, gee, you know, I wouldn't mind driving a horse in these races because I'm doing a little bit of the track work at home, albeit you know it was no big deal. You just blaze up and down the road, and then by that stage, I put a track in later. But then we were just training on the side road. Uh, anyway, so I went and got a license and started to have a drive here and there in a the race, and uh, it was all good fun. Did you win any of those races? Oh, yeah, I did. Uh, good man, good yeah. man, good man. One of the things I love when I come to your workshop over the years, there's so many familiar faces, and there's guys who've been with you for for many many years, and I, I know more of them by their nickname than their real name. I, I had to dig on a few of them to know what their real name was. Do you know there's people here? I do not know their real name <laughs> because they've always had nicknames. <laughs> But you've got to have a nickname if you work at GRM, don't you? You, you don't get a gig if you don't no, have a nickname. No, you, you, you do, but, but you get one by circumstance. No different to what I was talking about before about the dress-ups. Something happens along the way and you associate with that person with something, so all of a sudden that's their nickname. So when I think um, Michael Caruso, Robbo, Robin, Robinson, Robinson Caruso, Caruso, makes sense. Yeah. Um, Jeff Marshall, engine bloke who's been Gypsy. here for years. Gypsy, what, Gypsy why? earrings. <laughs> hey, from day one, he came here with his earrings. I thought, we've imported a bloody gypsy here. <laughs> and, of course, I'm gypsy. And, of course, it's stuck. It's stuck. Uh, Kevin Shoyer, who was here for many, many Shirl, years. Shirl. Shirl, uh, the um, singer. Shirl with all the big curls. Shirley Strong. Yeah, Shirley Strong, because Shirl had all that great big curls like him when he started. So he became Shirl. I'm trying to think um, who else. Uh, oh, the owl. Richard Holloway. <laughs> yeah. 
because, you know, I considered Dow to be the wise because he was so calm, cool, you know, and yeah. I'd be trying to excite him. He'd be saying, go on, Gaz, you know, no, nah, we won't this, you know. So I nicknamed the, the owl. Yeah. You know, it's just how it is. I, I love it. I, I think it's great. How do you – I mean – what do you deem leadership? I mean, you've got these people who are so loyal and been with you for so long, and clearly that's for a reason. How does how do you lead? What, what's your what's your theory on leadership uh, look, and direction? Look, there's only one. I don't care whether you're the managing director, the prime minister, you're the the cleaner, whatever. If you want to lead people, you lead them by example. Mm. You know, you, you ask people to, to do things. So long as you're prepared to either do it yourself or help them do it. And I think money's important. You've got to make sure people get rewarded reasonably well. But I think if you can give people a um, a a good example of – I mean, I'm really fortunate. My parents were, were very strict Catholics, and yet we had a lot of fun. As I said, my dad was an SB bookie. We had a lot of drunks used to come around and get paid of a Saturday night. But we had that sort of background where you had rules and regulations and, and you learned respect – and some self-disciplines, and I think during my work life, I think I've been able to get that in myself, and perhaps we've had a lot of young guys come here, and I'm really happy with the way most of them have turned out for us, because I just think that I make sure they have fun here, but I make sure, you know, hey, let me tell you, people see the funny side of me, but I can be, you know, uh, a disciplinarian if I have to be, but you don't need to do that just because you think you should. Mm. We talked about horses. Can you clarify a story for me? Right. So I heard a story from one of you guys, and when you hear the story, you probably will figure out who the, who it is. But I was told that over the years you've had lots of horses. Right. I hope this doesn't. This won't hurt. This won't hurt. Any of my wives and things <laughs> here, but this- <laughs> no, no, no. It's a right. horse story. So along the way, you've had many, many horses. So there was a something of an avenue of honour. Your pro- I think it was in Tassie, actually, with with a cross for all of them with their name on it. No, them. it's at my farm. At the farm. It's a burial site. So along the way, were you taking a you, – you had some guests or something like there and you were showing – and you hadn't seen them and you oh. walked along and there these – all you know, there's that horse's name and, oh, yeah, I remember that one and this one. And what was on the last cross? My name. <laughs> because Les Creeley, who was a bigger practical I've, joker I've than I I've there, haven't I? Yeah, he's an absolute shocker. And I've got all these crosses that stand by the river because when the horses get old, I try and keep them. I don't like them to go to the meat works. And some I give to kids as riding horses and uh, that that – works pretty well but occasionally you've got to put some of them down the fact is they just can't eat properly mm. they're going to die anyway um but so i started a little graveyard and i'm fortunate i've got a fair size property and i've got this section down by the river and uh, a good friend of mine who lives down the road from the farmer his nickname is grubby <laughs> everyone's gonna have a nickname <laughs> and he's got a bob or a backhoe so we started to bury them one by one by one and um then one day, I was trying to remember the names of them all because there was a lot that had been there. So I started to make a cross, or I did make a cross, and put their names on them. And anyway, Les Creeley came, and he was helping me do this over the years just sort of because he lives down the road. Anyway, you're right, I had some visitors actually visiting one day, and, and they were interested in our horses, and I talked them down, walked them through the the farm. We came to the graveyard, and like I've got Tasman, Texas, you know, Hilarious Way, all these horses – and I get down the end and I'm reading the names, reading the names. <laughs> the next thing I read on the, heads, on the big cross, Gary Rogers. And I thought, bloody Les Greeley, I knew. <laughs> anyway, so I'm buried before I actually was dead. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a great story. I thought it pretty much typified that it's sort of 
It's getting one back, but I'm sure that you, there's, there's, you could always find one too. There's a bit of mirth in that, so there's nothing wrong with that. No, nothing wrong with that. What was your favourite horse over the years? What was it called? Oh. What was the most successful one, maybe? Oh, I had a really good trotting horse called Ronorail, who was a really, really good horse. Um, yeah, I'd probably have to say he's the most successful horse I've had, but I've had quite a few. I've never had what you'd call an absolute champion horse, but let me tell you, not many people have. Mm. Um, but really, I've been able to afford what I do because I haven't spent a lot of money. We've bred most of our own. We buy a few, but I've been able to sort of get a reasonable band of broodmares around me. We don't breed a lot anymore, maybe two or three a year. Mm. Um, and if we break them in and get them going, if they go okay, uh, we'll race those. Otherwise, we'll sell them on to the country somewhere. Um, yeah, I, yeah, he'd be the, the probably my most successful horse. But look, they're all favourite horses. Probably my most favourite horse is a whole horse called Tasman, Texas. And um, he um, is a great big – he's like, a bit like you and big people are friendly, nice people. He's a great big friendly horse. He was a beauty. And uh, anyway, I don't bet much, but I was at the races at Cranbourne this day and uh, he was in there and Bob had trained him and he said, and Bob Wilson, horse trainers are the worst, right? They believe everything. They really love them, mate. And this horse, he said to me, Tex will win today. Get on Possibly. it. Possibly. Yeah, he said, can't. And so I walk into the betting room. He said, I was paying 33 to 1. I think, there is no way this horse will win today. Anyway, I, I had a small bet because, as I said, I'm not old pro. I think I had 50 bucks on the horse. So 33 to 1 wasn't a bad bet. Anyway, the horse did win, but he sort of, in later life, he got knee problems and he ended up dying. He got buried there. But I had a lot of fun with that horse and he really, um, he's just, you know, sort of something special about him. Yeah. Mm. Did you derive more enjoyment from wins in horses than cars or are they both, you can't really compare them oh, to? Look, you, look I, I didn't drive a lot of horse races. I drove a handful of horse races. I would have liked to have done more of it, but I was busy doing other things. Look, let me tell you, they are serious competitors, those people, mm. but, you know, and the girls are as tough as the blokes. Like, and there's no give or take. You, you know, you get on with it. Um, look, I've enjoyed both, but as which I'd probably say that horses are probably my most favourite thing. Mm. Understandable. I mean, you've got horsepower covered from either perspective that you yeah you i'm fit referring to the ones with four legs yes yes <laughs> the no, than four well, wheels. i suppose they've got four legs but they've got four wheels instead yeah. of four legs <laughs> exactly exactly we talked about the humpy holden so what was the evolution there eh holden no i went from the humpy have? to the escort sports and Ant. yep um yeah, no sorry no 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 sorry no that's not right i went from the from the humpy to the eh i'm looking at the there's a board over in the corner here yeah, that we're looking at. Hang on. uh uh, yeah, EH. Yeah, the EH. Escort. The Escort. Yeah. yeah. And then it all went on and rolled from there. And then it started the – well, the sports sedans, I had the um, – Well, that was the big Fatty back then, wasn't it? It was big back – sports sedans yeah, was they 70s were, was Yeah, huge. well, Bob Jane had the money deal, the um, money races at um, at Calder. Um, the Toby, and then in Sydney, they had the Toby Lee series. There was a reasonable prize money. Yeah. But back then, it didn't cost a lot to do it. So if you could pick up 100 bucks or a couple hundred bucks, you'd pay your fuel and have a bit of fun. Yeah, so then that all just went through sports sedans, and then I started the touring cars, um, and then we went to the Thunderdome, of course, mm. um, and then just, I don't know, it just rolled along. I mean, really, I didn't have this great grand plan, but I enjoyed what I was doing. I was able to then fortunately get some reasonably good sponsorship parties around me, 
Um, and then Stephen Richards, because we got involved in the Formula Ford um, program reasonably intensely through, actually through Michael Ritter, because Michael Ritter was married, Graham Ritter was married to my sister. Mm. And that's how Michael was part of family. And actually, Michael Ritter knew knew a driver when it, and I would talk to him and say you know I think this and he would tell me what he thought and actually I think he he helped me a lot with those, my driver selections mm. there's plenty of drivers that have come through GRM and Sonic Michael's team have a lot yeah, of that, yeah. similarities you know young drivers and, and opportunities yeah. uh, where we're sitting we're actually sitting in the foyer here at GRM and the uh, ZB supercar, one of the last supercars, which was Garth Tanner's last car when he when he yeah. drove for you. It's now in the retro livery that is based on your Tirana A9X from the yeah, late seventies. Yeah, well, that of course was the car bought from Bob Jane. Now that's another tell, story. Tell me the story of that. Okay, listen to the story. You probably shouldn't speak evil of the dead, but Ivan Stibbard, who was um, the manager of the ARDC at the time, um, and I'd ended to go to Bathurst um, with. Um, was this the Daryl Wilcox story? Yes, with Daryl so Wilcox. This was 78, I think. Yeah. So Bob Jane had built a Tirana A9X. Yeah, well, he and Paddy Gagan were going to drive, well, in that colour. Yeah. They were going the to Sebring orange? Correct. Yeah. 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 Anyway, what happened, I entered my car with Daryl Wilcox and Ivan Stibart. Now, this is actually a good story. I had a guy called John Andrew work for me in my car business who was a knockabout bloke, but a good bloke, but he's just very uh, impulsive and patient person. And he'd come to Amaru to watch me race, um, I'm just trying to think what I was racing there, but anyway, he'd come to Amaru, he'd worked in the K-out on Saturday and flew up Saturday night and come to Amaru Sunday, and of course he went to the gate, they wouldn't let him in. And um, John Andrew's not that sort of person, of course. So there was a bit of um, um, activity occurred at the gate. A disagreement of sorts? Well, yeah, you should yeah. say that. Right. And then, of course, from that moment on, Ivan Stibato and I never really got on anyway, but of course by this stage then everyone, you know, John Andrew had punched the living crap out of this bloke and therefore, you know, I was him and that wasn't good and, you know, anyway, that was how it was. And, so then and I he went ran to the end. Too. That did, was the, that was the top, Exactly. So when I put the entry in, he knocked the entry back. And of course by this stage I'd got Creative Pacific Finance on board with a reasonable sponsorship arrangement uh, and I couldn't... I'd, convinced them that we're going to be at Bathurst and one thing led to another so then I bought that car and the entry of Bob Jane because he was humming and ahhing whether he was going whether he wouldn't so then Fatty Gagan and I actually drove that car uh, but anyway it ended in tears because I'd gone through all that trouble and a broken engine we didn't go anywhere but it was all part of the history. At that point so we're in that you know that's muscle car top period you know Tiranas and hardtop Falcons and so many of our listeners and viewers love that Group C period yeah. of stuff. Um, at that stage, though, was racing uh, not the priority? The car business was growing. Yes, it was. The racing, you kind of did it when you could, how you could. And- it was. and uh, Yeah, yeah. Look, it wasn't like you knew a program. Um, I tried to follow the Sports and End series because I had reasonably good success with my Escort, which was a really good little um, two-litre uh, car, but it was also a pretty competitive outright car mm-hmm. at times. Um but like you said, you know, I was sort of building my car business. I'd opened up car yards in other spots, and I was trying to really get that going. Um, so, yes, you'd have to say, and that's like I said at the start, probably I didn't get serious enough about it, uh, and that's not to say I would have been good enough anyway, but the fact is, you know, I just got on with what I was doing, and I'm not sorry that I did what I did because it's all worked out okay in the end. Mm. Where was the first car yard? Uh, Nunawadding, 273 Whitehorse Road in Nunawadding. <laughs> LMCT? No, you didn't have LMCTs didn't, didn't back even then. have that no, back then. No. <laughs> yeah, you need to have a second-hand dealer's licence. You had that, you were in. 
And how how did you grow that? Well, actually, my LMC2, funnily enough, is 484. It's one of the first. I've still got it. Oh, you, well, why, why get rid of it? Well, when it got when they came in and you had to get one, mm. old Harry McLaughlin in Elizabeth Street, who was about 99, not out, but a really lovely old boy, he and I were good friends. He and I were going to be the first number one and number two, but I was overseas at the time. He, he got number one, and then by the time I got back, I got 484. Anyway, oh, yeah. that's <laughs> how people it happened. got it in front of you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how big did that business grow, the, the car side of things? Oh, it was quite a substantial business. Um, and that's sort of a bit of history here because Barry at that stage had, um, like I had the car yards and I was doing that and he used to work there every weekend like washing cars and doing the odds and ends. And then he was finishing school and he was quite a good student at school and he kept wanting to come into the car business and I said, no, well, that's not really a good idea. I don't think the car business is a good thing. And I suggested, or well, he really was a bit keen then to do the real estate valuers course, which he went and did that, and he did very well at that. And um, but all through it, he just kept saying, you know, even though he, he compl- you know, he graduated and he'd worn that, well, that cheese birds and all this, oh, uh, a lot of crap all that is. But anyway, he looked quite pretty in it, funnily enough. <laughs> anyway, so we went to the presentation, and uh, he said, listen, he said, I want to be in the car business. If you don't give me a job, I'm going to go and get a job, a car place somewhere else. Anyway, history now says that he came to work, he uh, did a great job there, and then after a period of time, probably about 10 years, he then he and my used car manager went out on their own, opened their own used car business, did very, very well at that. And uh, actually, now this is a good part of the story. Then what happened, he then went and opened up another business in Pakenham, another car business there on his own because his other partners stayed at um, Furniture Gullet. <laughs> Anyway, I, call, I used to call him and see him on the way home because I'd go past his car yard most nights on, on the way to the farm. And I called him one, one night and he said, um, oh, I'm thinking of selling out. And I said, what do you mean you think of selling out? He said, oh, I've had an offer to sell out. And I said, what? Because he'd, bur- he'd bought the property in Packenham along the highway. And he said, or oh, the whole thing, the, car, the business and the yard. I said, well, if I were you, I wouldn't sell the yard. I mean, to me, you should keep that. If you can sell the business, and you know, so be it. But I said, what are you going to do? He looked at me, and I, and I thought he was kidding, seriously. He looked at me and he said, oh, I think I might just come down and give you a hand. I said, yeah, well, that, I liked the idea of it, but I was thinking he was half pulling my leg. As in in the dealership work no, or the race no, team? No, no, I'd got out of the car dealerships. I was doing the racing thing full time. Mm. He said, oh, I think I'll just, I might come down and give you a hand. Anyway, I went home and I said to Kay that night, I said, Barry's thinking of selling his business. Anyway, one thing led to another. I called in there about a few weeks later, again, to have a drink with him one night. He said, I've done that deal. And I said, done what deal? He said, I've sold the, the business, but I've kept the property. I said, oh, yeah, good. Anyway, lo and behold, within the week, I've got these trucks pulling out the front here, unloading all these used cars that he hadn't been able to get rid of. <laughs> And he's been here ever since. <laughs> he couldn't get rid of him. I tell you, it's, it's been fantastic for me, absolutely. You know, he's just done such a, a great job of, um, I mean, I still like to poke around a bit at home with my horses and do things, but, you know, he gets on really well with the sponsor group, the staff get on well with him. Uh, so, you know, that's been a big positive for me. How many people ask if you're brothers? I've heard people ask no, if no, Gary love, and Barry brothers. I love this story, right? Right, He hates it, right? <laughs> Go okay. and tell. Yeah. Did you have a look at him? He's aged. I tell you, it's, I've been tough on him, right? <laughs> but I'm still so young and glamorous, right? It's true. It's true. So what happens, everywhere we go, they think we're brothers. And, of course, I don't say we're not. 
<laughs> so, yeah, so it's quite quite a, a good talking point at times. Love it. That's sensational. So we talked, Gaz, about that A9X Tirana that the car he's based on. Yep. I found some vision recently. I don't know if you've ever seen the vision of this. Well, not for a long time. You had the biggest shunt of all shunts in that car. And I'll Park, tell you, Amaru, I know, and it flattened Head it. on into a concrete wall virtually. No, actually side so on. So you got to the sort of side, That's the it. old stop corner. Tell, you know, tell it, everyone. It a little bit of acceleration off. Did you like that? Skill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to hit quite head on. Nearly. It was pure luck. <laughs> what happened? I lost control. Oh. I thought the car did something wrong. The car's never are the problem. It's I the love driver. it when the accident report says, and the car ran out of control. The fool behind the wheel ran out of control. So that's what happened car. that day? Yes. And it, it wrote it off. It was pancake. It did. Yeah. And you got out of it, though. I did. Is that bigger or the same or not quite as big as the 81? No, the 81 was the worst by a long shot. That's the, the – for those who don't know, the top of the mountain, the race got stopped, multi-car pile-up, Bobby Morris and Christine Gibson got together, all the cars behind, ploughed in, including yourself uh, – I mean, because there's no vision of the actual no, well, start what, of it all. So what happened from where you were? What happened, I mean, back then there were no yellow lights or any of that. Flag marshals had the yellow flags. They'd had it coming together at the top of the hill and um, they'd bounced off each other basically and the track was blocked just where the old Castro Tower – what's it called these days? I don't even know what it's painted in these days. Yeah, anyway, the that's, still there, that's yeah. what it was. But there was no sand trap to collect no, the there cars. Was no, it was just a bank, No, wasn't that's it? right. Yeah. You know, I remember coming roaring around there, and the next thing there was just nowhere to go. And um, so I sort of used the skill and daring that I could possess in about a split second, and I sort of hit reasonably head on, sort of, yeah, head on enough, I suppose. And, uh, and of course, then the, all the rest then came roaring along behind me, and then they all started spearing in, and the, that was the end of it there. So. so who did you hit? Did you hit the wall or the cars? No, I or? hit, I hit uh, two cars. They were sort of net. No, no, Oh, I suppose you'd say edged together a little, and then of course that just stopped. Everything stopped then, um, and and then what happened? The car caught fire. The fuel line was something in the inlet. Had, had, oh. Yeah, and there was, and, and of course back in those days you didn't have the uh, officialdom uh, or amount of people that you've got today. Mm. And they all talk about the drunks on the top of the hill. Let me tell you, thank God for the drunks on the hill. They're the ones that got me through the window. Yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, anyway. That's that's how it was. Was there any lingering effects from that crash for you? Well, for actually, a while? I raced the following weekend in Tasmania in my sports sedan. Jeez! And the only problem I ever had, I've really still got a problem a little bit. One of my eyes, because what happened? My brother's a doctor, as I said earlier. Evidently, when you're going like forward motion, really quickly, and, quick, and stop, your eyeballs all keep going forward. Yeah, right. And because they're in fluid, it bursts and it bursts all the blood vessels. Yeah. In the back of their eye. And uh, so the vision was a little impaired at that stage. But anyway, we got over all that. And the, the car stops, your body stops, but your eyes. Oh, it doesn't exactly right. It's very common, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's so many topics. One of the ones that we've talked about in the office that one of the boys wanted to ask too. You 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 mainly race touring cars, saloon cars, stuff with roofs. But you did have it go in an open wheeler somewhere I, along I, the line. Yeah, I, I I drove a BDG. Um, no, sorry, a. Formula Pacific, I think they were called at yes, the time. Yes, in the early 80s. I think yeah, it was. it was a car that the guy used to lease it out occasionally. can't even think of his name now. Um, I drove that at Sandown, actually. Um, 
The only thing I couldn't really get used to was the stop, stopping ability. Mm. The cars I've been driving, you know, you'd break it 100 yards or 150 or whatever. This thing, you could break it 10 feet. <laughs> so it took me a while to get my mind around that, but actually I quite enjoyed it. Did need a boat anchor to uh, pull no, it up on the no, way in. That's on right. the way in. Uh, one of the cars that – I mean, there's so many cars. I mean, I'm looking here in the, the models that are surrounding us that – your teams run over the years, but there's so many cars that you raced over the years. One we haven't talked about, I mean, we talked about Gagan before, but you had the Gagan Monaro yep. there for a while, which is just being restored at the moment, back to the Craven Mild livery oh, that, okay. that he ran yeah. it in. Well, I sold that car. Um, I've got a feeling you didn't sell it for what it's worth today. No, anyway. <laughs> yeah. To quote one of Dick's favourite words, right? No good looking backwards, all he gets a stiff neck. <laughs> Correct. Correct. And I think you'd probably cry if you looked at the values of some of those cars, but you had to you had to sell one to get to the next thing. Of course you, you did. It that was, was the, exactly the how it was. Yeah. I mean, today people walk in here and they see all those five thousands we've got and all the other things and they think, gee, there's money here unlimited. Well, today there is a lot of money here, thanks, you know, to my business skills and also to a good sponsor group. But back then, you couldn't get your next car or even get your next race meeting until you sold something. Now, whether that was some parts or a car or whatever, that's how you did it. And that, that was exactly how you did it. What's the most desperate thing that you did to go car racing? Is there anything – you hear of people doing mortgaging houses and, and going to the nth degree to buy this part or engine or upgrade – I get the impression that exactly. you didn't quite have to go that far because no. it wasn't quite at that level for you. No. Well, no. Look, I enjoyed what I was doing, but I also was building my business and I wanted to make sure that I did things as a reasonably good common sense level. But actually, probably the the one thing that sticks in my mind, when I bought the Alpha 155, the Tarquini car. The, the Super Tourer, yeah. Yeah, the yep. Super Tourer. Um, I went to um, France, actually, to buy some spares from a guy who had bits and pieces for sale over there, and Kay came with me. And um, I had to come back for some reason, and I bought a whole lot of engine bits. So I bought a couple. I went down to the local market square and bought half a dozen old, you know, these little carry-on bags because the airline thing was a bit different then. I mean, they had x-rays, but not what they've got today. So I disassembled all these bits and gave Kay all these little carry-on bags and a couple of bags to check it. And we had engine bits and con rods and cylinder heads. How she ever carried them is beyond me. But anyway, that wasn't a desperate thing because I could afford to do what I did. But the fact that we just got them here because we needed to get them here. Yeah. Yeah, Anyway, (laughs) so that was all part of it all. I love to the... The 635 BMWs, because you had for a time the, the Jim Richards JPS car that you had in the that Bob Jane T-Mart's orange livery, and they were beautiful cars, beautiful cars. Yeah. <laughs> Sad I crashed it. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> Is it Oran Park? I think one that was Oran Park, Ooh. yeah. Yeah. Well, let's not talk about all the crashes, no, guys. Let's oh, talk about the hey. good stuff as well. There's, there's lots of good stuff to talk about. Um, you mentioned something earlier too, Thunderdome. Yep. We get so many people who listen to our podcast and follow our stuff who loved the NASCAR racing and the Oscar racing and the HQs and all the stuff that used to go on out there. Tell me about racing around there because it's totally different to anything that most racers it, have ever done It is before. totally different. I mean, I'd always followed it on the television because I personally think NASCAR racing is one of the greatest. I mean, a lot of people say it's you're going round and round in a circle. Let me tell you right now, it is bloody hard. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I only drove an Oscar, so they're nowhere near the same speed. But let me tell you, those NASCAR drivers are the best. Mm. You know, so whole other thing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I decided to have a crack at that. And at that stage, Stephen Richards was driving here in the Formula Ford. And also then we d- then got the – because what happened, Bob got some reasonably good TV mm. um, for the Thunderdome. 
So we went out there with a couple of Oscars. Um, I'm guessing pro- prize money was one of the attractions. Prize too. money Bob was Jay okay. Yeah, cash, that's yeah. right. You could pay. You could pay your way reasonably well. Mm. And um, yeah. Anyway, that's how it all happened. Uh, just driving around that joint at 200 and something k's an hour with. One in front, one behind, one to the side, wall up there. Well, you get giddy. Yeah, I was going to say, no, how did you, you do adapt to seriously it? because you do not know where you are. Mm. You know, it's like shutting your eyes and then walking around a circle and open and say, "Where am I?" Yeah. But what after after you'd done it a little bit, you got to know the some of the markings on the uh, walls mm. and that because and you sort of got to know. But I, I tell you right now, it it was very very. Um, Intent, really intense concentration. Was that whole scene, do you think, 10 years too early? I don't think it was 10 years too early. I think the timing was right, but I just think that um, obviously it was driven purely by Bob. Mm. Uh, and, of course, um, he probably didn't have the support. Well, he had the support of the competitors, but certainly I think, you know, there was other um, – uh, I suppose you'd say, well, Bob never got on well with cams. I think that was. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that needs. I don't think that's elaborating on that. Um, so there was never a really acceptance of it. But I think it could have been. Um, it could have progressed much. I don't. Know, I was going to say whether it could or could not. I think the numbers, the, the competitor numbers, he couldn't keep bringing the Yanks out to do it because you mm. just couldn't keep to afford to do that. But I think it would have eventually got its own quality of drivers where it could have progressed and gone quite well but anyway really sad that because when you think about all the things they spend money on to restore i mean that was the only one outside of australia and we talk about history this and history that no different to sandown i mean they should talk about you know the thunderdome and sandown and those places should never go no, i drive past the thunderdome regularly my wife's from bendigo so we're always going backwards and forwards not so much lately because we haven't been allowed to go anywhere but when you look at the place now, it hosts Sad, a world it? championship touring car oh, race on the link track. Right. Uh, some of the big NASCAR names who yep. were big at the time or became bigger later on yep. race. It's the first yep. NASCAR race outside of North America. So it's That's right. it's part of NASCAR history on the other side of the world. It's exactly. A, it's a cool thing. So it's a little bit sad to see what it's it like. It is very today. sad when you look mm. at the condition it's in. Yeah. yeah. Gold Coast Indy. Didn't you get a win there or did you nearly <laughs> no, get a win there? No, no, I actually got a, a win there. I in should the have had two, actually. Tell me why you didn't get two. Well, you should ask Jim Richards, right? What did Jim do? No, 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 I did it because he, as I say, Stephen was driving with us at the time and I think Jim was also driving one of our Oscars from time to time. Anyway, we were at the Gold Coast. It was one of the support races and um, we are blazing along and um, back then – the, the speedway rules had the white flag. They'd wave the white flag with a lap to go. Which was different to the to road what, course racing, that's which right. is we're, slow car. Yeah, that's right. But yeah. also, of course, I was that excited, I'm leading the race. I'm no way, I can't get beaten. Now there's the chequered flag, I can see it. And we were like a foot apart, and I'm just that one foot in front of him. So I've got marginally off the throttle and I've gone over the start finish line. It was actually the white flag, not the chequered flag. <laughs> <laughs> one to go. One to go. Any, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, but funnily enough, the next year, nearly the same thing happened, but I actually did win it the following year. That's better. That's better. You're right at that, wrong. Happy ending. Yes, true. Uh, you've still got an Oscar. Uh, it's upstairs up there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. is that a. That f- was a brand new car. It never built. raced. No, it never raced. That was fresh. going to be our final fresh car ready to, so I could be a champion. <laughs> <laughs> and then they stopped Oscar. Yeah, well, they stopped the Thunderdome. Yeah. yeah. So it's. 
So it's just sitting up there in all its glory. One owner never raced. No, Still that's exactly you. right. Well, actually, it has. Well, it hasn't raced. That's the car. Remember when they did that? Uh, Barry organised that thing for my birthday. It was my sixtieth birthday. Oh, seventieth uh, birthday. Queensland up Raceway. Queensland Raceway. With all the cars. Yeah, Jim Richards actually took that. Well, we took the car up there, and he drove it. Yeah. Barry's yelling out from his office, seventieth. I think 70. you just tried to wind yourself back <laughs> to sixty. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so it blows around up there. So that's its. One and only run. That's, that's it. Had, that's that's a pretty, it. It's the probably no. It would be the least kilometre used Oscar in Australia exactly. racing history. That's that's pretty cool. You talked about the two liter, the Alpha, and getting the bits back here yeah. um, earlier. Tell me about because there was a little period there where Steve Richards obviously was here. He was doing Oscar. He was here for quite a while. He was here for a, a long time. Formula Ford, yeah. yeah, because he was doing an apprenticeship as a aircraft mechanic mm. in Moorabbin, and then when this came here, then he started helping, you know, because we had his Formula Ford. We had two Formula Fords here. He was, it was – forget who else was here. Um, and Bobby Smith was Stephen Richards' mechanic at the time. Anyway, so they were here. I think Noski was floating around. Yes, he was. That's right. The time as that's well right. With Steve. So that's '94. Yeah. yeah, and then two liter in '95 with the Alpha. So that's kind of so the Geo, Honda. The Honda was, the Honda in there, was too. there. The yeah. Nissan was there. as Actually, well. Actually, that that Honda story. That's not a bad story because I went to England to buy the Honda, which came. I think it was a British touring car factory. Yeah. Then the Primera came. We had the Primera as well. Yep. Um, so we had the Alpha originally. Then yep. we had the Honda. Then we had the Primera. Yep. Yep. And at the time, the two-litre thing's bubbling along, but that's where GRM first goes touring car racing, yes. but the V8 thing came, and then you ended up doing both. Yeah, that's right. Well, what happened, of course, everything about sponsorship was, you know, centred around television. If you could get some reasonable television, you could get some reasonable money from sponsors. And um, the two-litre series got, I think it was Channel 10, actually. It was, yeah, it was. Picked it up initially, and it got some reasonable TV, so we went with that. And that's that was another big positive for the Thunderdome, of course, because they had I think they would have been Channel Ten as well. Yeah, they were seven for a fair while, and then they went to yeah, ten a bit later yeah. on, with a bit of SBS, I think, along the way yeah. too. So anyway, so that's how it all sort of rolled on, and um, yeah. But during that period, we then bought our first um, super. Actually, we bought that first car from Gibson Motorsport. Correct. That's right. Um, yeah. That was a V. VR. VR, yeah, mm. correct. Mm. And then from then on, we started building our own cars, but that was there. And Stephen Richards was driving that car. Then Tanda came, I think. He came along. Bargwana came along. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. The two-litre stuff, though, I reckon it was a bit before its time because here we are now with TCR. Yeah, hey, that Peter it's a bit more relevant that, that to the Peter market. is no dope, I'll tell you what. Because everyone forgets that you have a history from the two-litre days. Yeah. everyone remembers the Boost Mobile yeah, that's era right. sponsoring you here. But, um, you know, so it was Peter, Terry Morris, Paul's dad and Alan Gow with exactly. the, the Toker Australia That's right, exactly. Actually, I saw Gow in England a couple of years ago when I was over there visiting my daughter who was living there at the stage. I had lunch with him, actually. Yeah. He hasn't changed. He's toffing up, driving the roller around there. He's got the big uh, fur coat. He's... <laughs> He was flying. He was, actually, he's a bloody good bloke. Those two later days were really good. There were some really good races there was. back in those days. There the was. BMWs, the Audis, Steve Richards in whichever car They probably he was just in. needed a few more of them, really. It was probably about five or six yep. short yep. of. Yep. It was never going to capture the wider, broader public imagination. I think, I think it may have had we had more cars. But Did anyway, you, that didn't happen. We've got what we've got. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I remember that Alpha ended up being sold and barrel rolling one day down at Phillip Island oh, really? with its next yeah. owner. 
Um, I saw that guy, to a bl- uh, guy, he had a business called the Queensland Gun Exchange. David Auger. Yeah, David Auger, yeah. yeah. he raced it for a long, long time. Yeah. I think he had to reshell it after it ended up barreling yeah. down the road. Steve Rich, Actually, I wouldn't mind finding that car. Well, Could I know where it is. It's somewhere overseas. Yeah. Somewhere overseas. Uh, Steve Rich had a big shot in the Honda up at Lakeside. Oh, yeah, remember he sure that? did. I do. <laughs> I remember going to the hospital with him in the ambulance. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that was yeah. nasty. That was nasty. Yeah. So you, when the crossover started, so you, you're doing V8, you're doing two-litre, different weekends, but remember that they, at some points, they clicked together. So there was a weekend where you went, we need a V8 Jason driver. Bright. Correct. That's where that all started. He drove our supercar in Tassie because yep. Stephen Richards was at Lakeside. I think that That's was right. – that might have even been that weekend that crash occurred, that maybe. that was the next year. Was but it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Same yeah. track, same car, same yeah. guy. Yeah. 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 But I think that's pretty much how that happened. At that point, did GRM start to become – more of a professional, full-on, full-time focused race team rather than, you know, the Oscar stuff was good. The two, it was just, everything was a step, a step, a step. And then V8 Supercars, of course, was just going gangbusters. Late 90s, early noughties was where that took off. Yeah, well, I mean, everyone, I mean, the main reason this all started is because I like racing a car. Mm. And really what happened then, you know, financially it was difficult, but then as time progressed... And we we were able to seek, or not only seek, but acquire sensible sponsorship relationships that could attract um, drivers and reasonable funds to be able to present the cars and and grow the business from there. That's really what started to happen. And um, I'm just trying to think. There was no, look, you know, did we have a real plan? No, other than I think we got on well with certain people. We were able to get those people on board and build the business from there. That's pretty much how it happened. It's been always talked about young drivers, you giving people opportunities, not just young drivers, but, you know, young mechanics and engineers and people who've developed all the way up through the the ranks here. You know, your team managers have been young guys over the journey. But was there a preconceived plan somewhere along the line that you went, we're going to provide opportunity here. Other people aren't doing it. We'll do it. Oh, the driver thing, certainly, yes. Um, and I think the staff thing came about because, well, sure, he did his apprenticeship at our Nissan dealership. In, in Was he about 12 at the time? When he started his apprenticeship, he was 14. <laughs> no, he was, seriously. He was young, wasn't he? Yeah. And he completed his apprenticeship, and he did a really good job with that, and then he came. And then a couple of others came from that background. Um, but the driver thing, I always – well, Stephen Richards really was the first of them. And then, of course, Garth, um, Bargs. Um, yeah, I just like that the energy and the sort of work and get it to happen attitude rather than say, oh, we've tried that before and that didn't work and, oh, this is too hard, you know. There's too much of that in our business, really. You know, sometimes you do make wrong decisions by being a bit experimental, but um, I just find those younger guys, you can drive them with a bit of energy and they'll drive energy into you because they're enthusiastic about um Wanting to get it done. That's a good way to look at it, isn't it? Absolutely. Did that become part of – I mean, it's become part of the, almost the signature of this place and the list of young drivers, and more often than not, they worked out or that they achieved things and sometimes they went off and, you know, moved on to other teams and things like that later on down the track. But um, that's probably – the. there's two things that probably stand out here. It's a bit wrong, but so many people say GRM punching above their weight. It kind of annoys me over time because yeah, I think it does me done, too, to be honest. Well above, you've 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 you're in your weight category. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but uh, often, some some of those ones along the way didn't turn out, but many of them did, and you know, yeah, did other look, things. I think most of the ones um, did turn out. I think that we didn't have too many failures, 
And although I suppose people laugh about it, and I probably still laugh at it. Obviously, I tip Wind Cup out. So <laughs> I was you know. going to. No, gonna no. Hey, look, hey. But, he, at the, but at he, the time, you're just judging it on hey, what you saw. Hey, that's it's exactly right. Look, personally, I like liked him as a, a good young guy, and he was. A, but he was just seriously. He couldn't concentrate to the the, the sort of level that I needed in our team at that stage. And and uh, look, I look at him now, and I talk to him. Hey, good on him. You know, I was wrong, and uh, he was right. Mm. And here he is about to finish as a full time yeah, that's driver right. with you know a bazillion race wins and exactly. championships and that's it. all that sort of stuff. That's so it. it's funny how it all works out. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car? best suited to. Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. One of the things from along the way that we get asked about a lot is, and I can see the models here, the Monaro program. Is that the most, I mean, the Volvo program was special, the Monaro program was special. The whole process of being right in that from the very start, from the first design of that car right through to winning the 24-hour race two years in a row. Does that stand out to you as a bigger achievement than winning the 1,000 a couple yes. of years before that? A lot of people would Absolutely be surprised Absolutely no doubt. Really? Yeah. I mean, what you've got to – I mean, we had nine or ten people working here in that era, and we are running the Super Bowl, and that wasn't the Supercars, it was the Touring Car Championship in, in, in Supercars. Um, and we built those cars. Now, in, in fairness, we John Stevenson, who was the motorsport manager at Holden, helped us a lot – you know, with the design and that, but we had to get had to do it. We had to do all that. And we talk about design and engineers and things. So we did that with a, you know, cheese platter, a couple of glasses of red wine and a bloody drawing board. <laughs> I mean, no one had a computer. We didn't know what a computer was, <laughs> you know. So when I look at um, that and also to c- continue racing our supercars mm. or our touring cars, Build those cars, test those cars, and get them to last for twenty-four hours. That is no doubt the best, the most um, satisfying to me. Now, perhaps not to others, but certainly to me, uh, I think that's the most rewarding thing that I've accomplished. Does it frustrate? You? I mean, we see it a lot from people who say it was like taking a gun to a knife fight. The things were so much better than other things. But I always counter that by saying, well. If a, if a pro Porsche had come to the 24-hour with four factory drivers, they would have given you a massive run for your money. But no one was able to put together a program or a, a driving combination no, that's, that, could, that could lay a punch that, on you know, the, exactly, the drivers you had. Exactly right. And we read the well, the rule book, as it were, as to best that we could get out of. And, and we knew we hadn't been racing in 24-hour races, but I had enough knowledge of people. I knew the Snitzer boys pretty well. I'd spoken to them about a lot of things and I knew what we had to be able to design and build and just keep the lid on it for 24 hours rather than get all excited about doing a hot lap here and a fast lap. And the beauty of that is in drivers back then would do what they were told. <laughs> because really, I know, look, I accept the fact that they want to be quicker than the next bloke, but that was never going to win you the race. And I think that um, we were fortunate to be able to monitor that, put it in play, and certainly the next year when we ran two of them, we had eight drivers. Mm. But but anyway, as I say, it, to me, that was certainly one of the most or the most 
personally satisfying thing I've ever done in motorsport. How was it when Brock turned up to drive? Because he came the next year and drove the Nations Cup in the red car. Nathan Pretty was in the yellow car, which kind of became sort of became his car, really, because he was more the full time yeah, guy in right. it than than anyone else. But how did how did that year with Brock go running? Actually, out of Brock and I, no problem. Like Brock and I were around forever. Like it wasn't an issue for Brock and I. You know, the problem you had with Brock is so many people hanging off Brock, right? So it wasn't just dealing with Brock; it was all the people that wanted to be a part of Brock. Mm. But um, you know. Personally, personally, I quite enjoyed travelling with him, having fun with him, because that's how it was. But, um, you know, there's certain personalities that just didn't w- work or wanted things to work differently for Peter Brock than what it would work for the whole team, and that wasn't going to work for me. Mm. You love those Monaro so much you built another one. <laughs> well, It's had so much interest, that new car. I know, but, well, of course what happened, we've got all this COVID stuff. The fact is, like I mentioned before, you know, we've got a lot more than nine people here these days, but when all this struck and we had nothing, or when I say nothing, we had small jobs to do with no racing going on, and I said to Barry, like, you know, we don't need to be putting people off here. We need to, you know, try and find some things to do. And it was always sort of our intention at some stage to perhaps build another one of those cars. At the time in the period, yes, wasn't it? when yeah. we built the first two, it was, and we sort of had a handful of bits, but not many because we'd sold stuff off, and it was so long ago. And then when we decided to do it, um, because there was a lot of interest in that yellow car, and I mean the yellow car will never go; it's here forever. Um, and Barry said, "Well, maybe we should build a new, another one of those cars, and eventually recoup our money by keeping everyone employed, get it done, and, and that's how it'll, it'll happen." Anyway, sure enough, that's exactly how it did happen. But funnily enough, Barry went, oh, we ended up with a second-hand body shell from someone. We'd no sooner got that, and someone rang us and said, oh, here you're building a, a, um, another Monaro. I've got a brand-new body shell. Would you like that? Mm. Anyway, let's cut a long story short. We bought that, and then in the meantime, we'd accumulated another couple of body shells, so you never know. <laughs> we might build might another be, one. It might be the well, last, last, last. Hey, let's hope there's no more bloody COVID because the world and certainly – um, sporting and, and activities like that do not need that again. No, we've we've done that. We don't need to try no, that again. We'll Although, do not. You could just about end up with every colour. You've got a yellow one, a red one, you've got a cream one, you've got a purple one, a blue one. Well, that, that was a bit of contention, of course, because I wanted purple. You wanted purple. purple, didn't you? I wanted purple. My first early model, OL606. But who, who talked you down? Barry. Oh. Well, the combination perhaps of Barry and Les, um, because they – they're cunning little bastards. They didn't work on me intently, but they just bit by bit just, just chipped away. Exactly, bucks, that's right. A couple of little ones And then, the of course, you know, the original Kevin Bartlett um, – uh, it wasn't Bruce McPhee, Kevin Bartlett um, – Hey, Baz. Yeah. Kevin Bartlett who? Spencer Martin. Oh, Kevin Bartlett, Spencer the Martin. Colour, the the H D T banana. Yeah, that's that, right. Well, that ended up that colour. That's how it ended up that way. It, luckily, it didn't. Um, have the singeing from the side of the original car that caught on fire at Sandown and <laughs> <laughs> went backwards through the yeah, fence. I think yeah. when, it, when it lost its brakes. Anyway, so that's how it ended up the car. And to be honest, I think I was quite happy with the end result. Mm. Oh, it was great. I mean, it's it, it had so much attention and people loved it. Well, and when I looked at the end result, like we are so fortunate here to have the group of workers here um, that we've got. Um, like I said before, the money's important, but you've just got to have some rewarding projects and things that give you a bit of self-satisfaction mm. rather than just a big bag of dough at the end of each week. Well, when I think about it, and, and some of them are sitting here up on your mezzanine in the workshop, you've done other cool stuff 
not just the racing, you know, the, the supercars and the, the Monaro and stuff like that, the Thunder Ute. A lot of people have forgotten that. That was a supercar running gear in a ute that became a ride car and yeah. did all sorts yeah. of stuff. Well, actually, funny enough, because, you know, we mentioned about engineers and engineering and things like all of that, and I suppose um, it might be opportune to mention about Pierre Luigi Orsi. Yeah. And um, because we'd never had engineers here, there was, like, as I say, there was Sheryl, who was an apprentice mechanic from, from Anderson dealership. There was myself, who was a diesel mechanic, Michael Exel, who was our engine man, um, and then we had Jono in the fab shop. That Pretty much that was the basis of our people, and th- we didn't have an en- engineering degree between us, mm. no way, but we knew about mechanical things, we knew how to build things that would last, and uh, I think we'd shown that that was the case. But bit by bit, over a period of time, people started approaching us, wanting us to do jobs and to work for them. And I could see that, I mean, I don't understand all that CAD design or any of that other stuff. I got no idea at all. And um, so I'd had this young fellow who'd approached, he sent me a letter. He was a engineering student, a mechanical engineering student at a university in France. And there he'd met a young girl who was an Australian girl whose parents happened to live in Burwood. He was a, a Frenchman. Um, no, he's actually a Colombian, a Colombian, but he spoke fluent French. And anyway, to cut a long story short, he wrote to me a few times wanting to know could, would we give him a. And this is like two thousand sort of period. Wasn't yes. it? Yeah, yeah. Would he sort of, you know, he wanted to, he'd fallen in love with this girl. He wanted to come and live in Australia. Would we sponsor him and that? Anyway, to cut a long story short, what happened? Um, I wrote back to him and I said, you know, look, if you're coming out for Christmas holidays to visit your, your girlfriend's parents, come and say hello. And if there's any chance, then, you know, we'll see whether we can do anything from there. And actually, it was the most wonderful interview for a job with anyone I've ever had because, you know, he, he was that keen, I'm sure, to get this job. But And he'd never – he's he, I'd say his parents were not – wealthy people, but reasonably intelligent, well-heeled, and I'd say they'd drummed it into him. You're going for a job interview, you've got to look like you're serious about the job interview. And this is when we were based in um, Glen Waverley at the back of the uh, Nissan dealership. And uh, anyway, I'm waiting there, and this guy arrives, and he's only a small in stature, Pierre. He was probably only about maybe five foot three or something like that, and quite a skinny fellow. Um, but a bright eye, you know, a bit like a horse. If a horse got a bright eye, you got half a chance. So anyway, he had a bright eye and he came in and he'd, he'd obviously been and bought himself a suit and a shirt and a tie and a pair of shiny shoes for the job interview. And fair income, the suit would have fitted you <laughs> and the shirt. Which, by the way, I'm 6'4". <laughs> I, I never forgot this. He's walked into the place and, and I knew he felt self-conscious about it, but he'd just done what he thought he had to do to get this job. That's how much this girl, I reckon, meant to him. Mm. And he came, and the coll- he's got the collar done up, right? But it's out here somewhere, and the ties he's got the he's tried to do the knot and the tie and fair income. It was just all over the place, and uh, but he got the job. Well, he did get the job, so we had a bit of a chat, and one thing led to another. It's cut a long story short. Yes, he did get the job, and I did comment on his shiny shoes. So uh, I think he felt that he hadn't wasted his money because he did. Anyways, he was here for years and years and years, and that started. That really started because cause I mentioned we were getting this inquiry about doing work for other people and making things and doing this. And, uh, you know, I was 
smart enough to know, was street smart enough to know that we needed people that understood that. There's no good me talking about a ball paint hammer and a 12-inch shifter to mm. some guy who's been, you know, to some Rizbang engineering place and they're talking about CAD designs and, yeah. you know, they think, well, this old guy, he's, he's off in Mars, you know. <laughs> Any, anyway, so that's how it all came about. And um, then, then of course, he then introduced that mentality here where we used to employ a couple of young trainees every year out of university, like the second or third last year when they were doing the university, they'd come here. And most of those guys, some of them are still here, some of them have been on and gone to other teams. Uh, but Cowboy, who you knew, who ran the place for a few years, he was one of those. Big Dean, yeah. Yeah, Dean. Yeah, I mean, that's how it all happened. And uh, I've got to say, whilst I still perhaps favour the more analogue approach, <laughs> because I, I just don't believe that, uh, all those buttons pushing that. Do my, you know my, how to turn a computer on? No, right. I do, okay. I do not. That, that establishes the no, line. Then okay. No, but I don't <laughs> believe what the computer tells me most of the time. And of course, that's where Richard Holland, Holloway and I you saw Krusty or, or the Owl um, disagreed because they love all that stuff. They love the squiggly lines. Yeah. Next time you're talking, ask him about the weather forecast. I will. Right. How's that going to go for me? Well, what happens when we'd go to the race meetings somewhere? We'd be discussing. Because I can't believe these race teams. They've got all this stuff on the weather, the this and the that, but they can never work out when it's going to rain. <laughs> anyway, this particular day, I said to Krusty, I'm going to go out the back there. There's a paddock full of horses, and I'll tell you right now, if, face, horse, if their asses are facing the west, it's going to rain. You know, I went out there, and sure enough, here's the horses all queued up again. The asses due west. Within an hour, it's pissing rain, Right. So what you really need if you're a race team, forget the fancy weather station and the internet and the, the Bureau of Meteorology actually, app. Actually, remind me. Just bring a horse with you to the track next time. No, just find a paddock, paddock where there's some. Just see which way it goes. I know, and I'll tell you what it works. Anyway, that actually reminds me of a very very funny story with Pierre because um, Draffo, back to Draffo again, Draffo, as I say, was the best practical joke you, you would ever find. And this is when Pierre, we ended up, with a weather station on our truck, which, you know, everyone had them, but mm. I'd never heard of this. And the next thing, we've got this thing on the top of our transporter. And uh, anyway, Draffo's, Draffo's gone up there on the ladder and snuck up at the top of the roof with a bottle of water. <laughs> and, I think I know where this is going. And he's tipped, he's tipped all the water. I don't know how this thing works, but it must sense it somehow that there's water coming. So he's tipped water on this thing and then slid down the – and, of course, Pierre and all the uh, honchos have gone into a spin inside the garage because all of a sudden the weather's coming, the rain's coming. <laughs> pit now, pit now, wet tyres, wet tyres. It's just Draffo with a bottle of water know, on the roof of the I truck. <laughs> um, we talked about the Monaro program and, and there's so much love for that from the fans out there and from people who, who love your team. We've got to talk Volvo. How did that all start? Where did the wheels to Volvo begin? Okay, what happened? That really started initially with the um, – not the, the um, not the Dodge. What's that? The Chrysler. Because oh, I was spoke- going to ask you about that. Okay, we'd spoken to Chrysler about a supercar program because we were trying to get a factory involvement of some kind. Which at this stage, Holden and Ford are still in. This uh, is yeah, early two thousand tens. Yeah, Nissan. Nis- I don't think had come in at that quite. stage. No, they came in in twenty thirteen, and Volvo came fourteen. So I, I have a vivid memory about that chrysler stuff maybe that was 11 12 yeah well what happened there? we'd approached them and a girl that used to be in the pa department at nissan lenore fletcher mm-hmm. um who i knew through the dealership days was working for chrysler and um we went and had a meeting with them and just discussed 
whether we could um, uh, build a Chrysler um, supercar for the program, and we said we could do that, but I don't know. Anyway, in the meantime, we'd had some discussion with um, with um, Volvo, just briefly, just we'd had an approach. I think Coco actually might have mentioned it to the, the Volvo dealer in, on the Gold Coast or something, who in turn um, sort of ended up and at us, could we do it? And the answer was, yes, we could. Would we like to do it? Yes, we would. Anyway, what happened? They were sort of humming and ahhing, not wanting to know about it. Then all of a sudden, they got a sniff of the fact that we were maybe going to do this Chrysler deal. So all of a sudden, it was just amazing. Like someone had turned the tap on. The next thing, we'd done the deal. Like, mm. And, of course, then um, – And was the Chrysler thing actually close? Oh, no, it was Dinky Die. Oh, yeah. no, but the guy – what happened? That's the guy that ended up getting the chop because um, he poured all the money. Remember – I can't think of his name, but he got. I think he. Got oh, there was to, a bit of issues. Yes, with, with financial. With deals. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, to cut a long story short, yes, I mean they were quite interested in it, um, but then, as I say, then at that stage we didn't have any real firm commitment from um, from Volvo. But once they heard of this, um, so a little bit of competitive pressure and a little yeah, bit that's of right. fear that's of missing out exactly. got them in yeah. exactly. So in a way, we could say that Chrysler helped get Volvo in. Well, yeah, you would say that. Yeah. Anyway, look, it all worked out for the best. So what happened very quickly, and things really turned around, we sort of um, designed the car, got all the stuff, and by this stage I'm on charge of CAD design. I've got more computers fed anything than the Mars orbital <laughs> space station. I'm sitting at home every night computerising everything and just right, how, how right. are we going to get this to work? Right. <laughs> no, anyway, so what happened by this stage, we had assembled quite a sensible group of, of um of young engineers uh, and people that could design all that. So we designed the, the car uh, and then uh, Cowboy, myself and Krusty went to Sweden and met with the uh, powers-to-be over there. And the deal was that we would design and build the car and they would design and build the engine. Mm. That's pretty much how it was done. And Matus Everson, who there was their engine man and still is their engine man, a really smart and a really terrific bloke. He um he was all part of that program, and of course the um there was that many fingers in the pie. Not not um because you had Polestar, which was owned by Christian Dale, but there are other parties involved in the um, Polestar was a very different organisation. I mean. You, you never really knew who was the boss or who wasn't the boss because every time you'd have a meeting, there'd be a different person there and they'd all have a different title. And, um, of course, we're not strong on titles here. No, no. But no. anyway, we all what the facts are that it all worked. They designed the engines, we designed the car, we built the car, we raced the car and had success. And how great was that, hey? It's still talked about. When we... I mean, when, you know, the Volvo's been gone for five odd years now in supercars, but whenever we run a photo on socials or there's a story online about where the cars are now or remember when McLaughlin did this or that happened or the retro liveries, it goes crazy. People absolutely love it. Yeah. I mean, it was different, but it was successfully different. It was. It wasn't just different it at the was. back of the field. And, of course, I think the least likely person to be racing a Volvo would be us. Oh. Uh. A Dodge Phoenix or a Plymouth Barracuda or something. I mean, yes. 300C fat thing. I could picture well, yeah, yeah, that's right. you but, doing but that. But anyway, it was an extremely, as I say, the, the 24-hour program is the best thing I've ever done, but this is a close second. Because you've – it's not just the fact that you've been given these cars and then you go and go well. 
you, it started from the start with yes. a manufacturer deal, with designing it from scratch, with all the aero testing, the engine work, putting it all together, and then achieving on the track. And then obviously this kid McLaughlin went pretty well too. Yeah, he did. he did. He did okay. He did his bit as, as part of it all. And people are going to talk about no matter what he does in IndyCar, what he did in supercars with winning Bathurst and championships, they're going to remember the Jandal. They're always going to remember yeah, that interview. That right. launched him into the, the national sporting conscience yeah, beyond just the motor racing it fraternity. Did. It was huge. Uh, he'll go okay in the IndyCars. He's, he'll just, he's smart. He'll take his time to get it right rather than go and be hero in five minutes flat. Yeah. What 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 do we not know about Scott McLaughlin that you can tell us? You've got a little story about Scotty that you can share with us that m- most people might not know? Oh, look, he and I had a very good relationship. I mean, look, I really um, – look, he was just a young – he was very young at the, when he came here, but, like, he could drive. He, he could drive. Um, and I think the biggest thing that really sticks – in my mind about him, he had great um, um, self-disciplines. Um, he had a lot of respect for everybody, whether that be the bloke sweeping the floor or, or the managing director of the sponsor's company. And he never tried to be anything he wasn't. He was very natural. He could talk to people, all be a bit sort of rough around the edge. or well, not even rough. He was quite polished, but he was sort of young and immature. Yeah. But that was good. That wasn't a bad thing. I saw that as a big positive, and you should never want to change that. He hadn't quite been Penske-fied at that point. I mean, they all become a bit corporate when they go to Penske. That's well, just how it is. when they go to the US, they do. Because yeah. The, yeah, that's, exactly. That's, and that's and just that, how it is there. That's just how it is. Of course. It eventually, they, it'll eventually happen there, but uh, let's hope not too soon. Let's hope. The I mean, there were some wins along the way. I mean, he challenged. He pushed Triple Eight in one of those championship oh, years. absolutely. That was probably the – I mean, Garth had pushed Scaife yep. years before for the championship. McLaughlin had pushed Wing Cup and Lowndes, who were kind of the benchmark guys there. But I just love the love that's for that program and for those cars. And the, so many of the fans are saddened by the fact that they're not here. We can't look at one. They're, they're over in over in Sweden with, with Polestar. Yeah. It's a little bit of a shame that we – but it's the memories that we're going to keep on talking about. The kind yeah, exactly. Of, keep it all going, which is yeah. cool. Um, the Chrysler thing, though, not many people were across that. Oh, I'll tell you what, that was seriously very, very close. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well, if we didn't have that, then we wouldn't have had Volvo – and we wouldn't That's be right, exactly. Things, and, so. and to be frank, with no disrespect to the Chrysler, I think the Volvo ended up being, I mean, it was just the right shaped car for the mm. program. Mm. And I've got to say to Matthias, like, he did an amazing job with that engine. He oh, really it was did. Because it was a Yamaha engine, wasn't it? Was, it was. Four and I mean, a bit later. Yeah. Sort of early into the pro, well, not early, about midway, we did have, they started experimenting with some bearing issues and things, and we started to have some engine problems. But all in all, uh, he did an amazing job with those engines. Yeah, ripping, ripping things. We have some friends in our podcast who help support what we do. Right. So the motorsporttrader.com is a website that deals in all sorts of memorabilia and all that sort of stuff. Yep. Now, what's your most cherished bit of motorsport memorabilia? I know you're not mega, mega sentimental, but is there anything in this joint that you go, oh, we've got to make sure we save that? Is it a trophy, a car, uh, an item from the past? What's your? Is there a piece that you go, oh, that's the thing that I like the most? Well, I, look, I don't think there's anything really that I would say that's my special, special, I've got to keep that. Um, what happens, and I'd need to get the back and do it, there's a couple of old containers out the back, and over the years everything's just got thrown in there and it's got forgotten. Um, 
And I was in there the other day because when we well, when I say the other day, probably about a year ago because we dug some stuff out of there to see what bits we did have left to try and put this new car together. And I found um, an old national cash register that I'd bought at a clearing sale on some farm in the back of the bush somewhere and I'd forgotten all about it. But I remember oiling it up and wrapping it up and say, gee, I want to keep that forever. Today, you know, it's quite a – to me, that, that's something – that's probably more special than all these trophies. Yeah, something yeah, a bit different. Yeah, that's cool. That. But also in there I found some photos early on of my horses Yeah, and with Chrissy who's now – 32, like when she was a year old or 18 months, I remember there's a photo of her and I um, with, um, I think it might have been a horse I had called Main Report, who was actually quite a good horse too. And she was, was, he, was he a headliner if he was, he was called Main no, Report? No, no, he was yeah, seriously, nice. no, he was. He was a very good horse. Um, and there's a photo of her and the horse is sort of like she's about the size of this microphone and the horse is about the size of this building and, and its head's just nudging at her and I'm thinking to myself, uh, gee whiz, this could end in tears, but it didn't. That, those those are the things to me that are perhaps um, the things that I get more satisfaction out of than than the glitzy things, to mm, be honest. The personal connection yeah, stuff. I know, yeah, I know. totally, totally understand. In the lead up to doing this interview, we put the call out to our followers on social media, right. which I know you know what you know what podcasts are, computers are, and social media are. Well, I'm learning. I know what a podcast is now. Yeah, you're on one. You're, you're, you're big time. The National Motor Racing Museum up at Bathurst, which yep. is, of course the Monaro yep. has spent a lot of time at over the years. The wild card supercar from last year's up there at the moment as well, um, on display from memory. So there's been a bunch of your cars go up and back up there yep. over the journey that fans have been able to to have a look at. It's open six days a week, not Tuesdays. Don't go on Tuesdays. Tuesday. There's no one there. Actually, that, that has got a lot of good stuff there. A lot of good stuff in there. Yeah. It's got Des West's um, Humpy ra- race suit. No, the race oh, yeah, suit that yeah. I bought in an auction with the cigarette burns in it. <laughs> I remember buying that. And I go to that. When you go up there, or whoever's going there, listeners or viewers or whatever you do, go up there and have a look at Des West's driving suit. You'll see those cigarette burns. He was a prolific smoker. Mid-race. Anywhere. Anywhere. And, of course, he dropped the cigarettes on his leg or wherever, and, of course, it'd burn a hole in his driving suit. <laughs> Not very fireproof then, uh, if you're doing that. Uh, uh, they present our couch racer questions, Baz. Uh, I'm looking down and I saw it from Barry. That's why I said Baz. Um, but the first one that we've got here is from a bloke, Stephen. I think it's Stephen Richards, by the way. I think it's the Stephen Richards. Oh, the Stephen? The, the one and the only, the They're former good. GRM driver. Right. He says, ask Gary about how fun the days were in the Oscar and what about the poem that he wrote uh, about after John the Oran Park race with John Faulkner? <laughs> what was the story of your poetry? Uh, actually, I, I quite like poetry. Um, I like sort of old traditional poetry, but I did write a poem. This goes back to the Thunderdome days. In fact, I think I've got it upstairs. I'll, get, I'll send you a copy of it. All right. It was all about um, who John Faulkner, who was the sort of the king of the Thunderdome, and he could bloody well drive John Faulkner, but... He saw Stephen Rich as a young upstart. He was never going to beat him, and he was out there puffing his chest about he's going to play hell with hot stick, and you know it wouldn't matter about what Stephen Richards does, you know, because I'm John Faulkner, and he's never going to catch me. Anyway, so um, I wrote this great poem. It's called the Trophy. Actually, I better go. I've got. I will send it. It's actually. We have to get a copy of this. Yeah, it's quite a good verse, actually. (laughs) So was was it a sledge? Yes. Right. It was, it was a, a poem of sledge. There's nothing wrong with a sledge. No, nothing wrong with it. Sports That's built on competitive That's where they're all too soft spirit. today. Sledging should be, should be mandatory. You should have to sledge. <laughs> You're penalised if you don't. 
you're out. That's right. All right, we'll get a copy of that for yeah, our no, I think it's viewers and our yeah. listeners. Uh, we'll, I might recite it one day in a special episode. It's quite lengthy. Oh, okay. Because it actually it goes through the Thunderdome. It eventually ends up at Oran Park because we had a street race there in the night. I remember that under lights. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Actually, remember the closing that. words are something about the Victus Cup. It's a foregone conclusion. Don't bother talking to anyone else. Just hand it to me or something. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think famously he, and we've had him on the podcast before, yeah. he made a comment on the radio or in a TV interview that put my name on the trophy, boys, we're going to win this That's tonight. It, exactly. And it didn't work out that <laughs> way. Right. It's kind of like, you know, celebrating a lap early when you see the white flag. Yeah. Well, it never happens before. Yeah. I mean, that's just totally dumb, isn't it? Who would do that? Who would do that? Mm, only uh, a dumb wit. Yes. John Morris, who's a long-time photographer around the Australian motor oh, racing yes, scene, yeah. uh, runs MPIX. Um, is there a personal favourite of your, all of your outfits that you wore from over the years? I know we touched on this earlier, but is there a personal favourite that you think's the best? The bowl of fruit was pretty good on the, you know, the the full drag kit in the Volvo yeah, that days. Was for the, Priscilla Queen of the Priscilla desert, for wasn't the, it? the bus trip to Bathurst. That yeah. was pretty good. Yeah. Well, probably because of my bent sense of humour, I would have thought that the Bill Clinton. <laughs> I knew you were going to say was that. Probably the How did I know you were going to say that? Well, How did I know? Because you're probably aware that I have got a bent sense of humour. Yeah, exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, Justin Olden has got the next question. Um, how difficult was the situation for you personally having to let Garth Tandy go when, of course, you had to make a change here? And um, he finished up. He said, look, I understand it's probably a business decision, but there probably wasn't a lot of choice in the, in the matter. So was this when the Stanaway yes. situation? Oh, that was extremely difficult. Mm. So Garth had, you know, he'd been here for many years, gone away, come back, and then things changed here. So what was the scenario? Well, there's probably no real scenario other than the fact was that we needed the funding to be able to keep the program going along in the in the direction that we, as a team, not as individuals, needed to do. Um. And um, I had to make that decision, and I made the decision. Mm. Just a simple business decision. That's that's life. It is. That's how it is. Was it hard to have that chat with with the big fella? Very. Yeah. Yeah. That's just life, isn't it? He won Bathurst last year, so it's kind of worked out okay for him. Hasn't been so bad. Yes, it sure certainly right. has, and it certainly did. I'm sure, it's. Uh, I'm sure he's okay. Um, Richie. Uh, Jade and Ricketts ask another question. So there's a Richie. There was always going to be a Richie Stanaway question here. Um, what was the story with him going home from the Gold Coast mid race weekend? What was the go there? Well, I think it's common knowledge what happened there. I mean, Richie Stanaway. I quite like the fellow. Actually, he's very difficult to manage because he's a different person. But you've got to accept that. But there's certain regulations and rules that you need to have. Um, within your, your team, and that's whether it's a car racing team or a footy team or just a business team. And um, I made those points very clear to Richie uh, at, at all times. And then when uh, a, a matter that he should have addressed, which in, uh, encompassed uh, presenting himself to speak to the public at a... Um, uh, point on the Gold Coast, uh, he just decided that that wasn't important enough to do. Well, the fact is it was important enough to do. And you took the action that you felt was appropriate afterwards. Yep, yep. Um, there's some good ones here. Uh, Brett Douglas, 
Anything you would have done differently in your motorsport career? I don't get the sense you're a regret type of guy, Gaz. In motorsport career or yeah. in my life? Oh, well, both if you want to go <clears> even wider. No, I don't think there's nothing I would do any differently in my life than what I've done. Can't change it now anyway. Either so, way. Yeah. But it wouldn't matter if I could. I wouldn't want to because what Who I've done is what I've done. Up. And I'm happy yeah. with what I've done. Yep, yeah, I think it should be. I think it should be. Uh, Richard Hargraves. Love to hear a bit about Clive Benson Brown, Alan Brown, and Peter Jansen. Well, how many hours have you got? There's probably a few stories there between those three. Well, Clive Benson Brown actually, um, the disco duck. The disco duck, Soundwave discos. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. I mean, that all came about through Peter Jansen, funnily enough, because obviously Peter Jansen had realised the disco duck had a few bob. (laughs) He uh, was in every deal, wasn't he, Jansen? He was. was Actually, he's a good bloke, Jansen. He's all right. Anyway, what happened, um, he – I think he was tied up with Larry. Larry was doing some stuff with him, yeah. With, he um, bought a deal with Jensen. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And I think Jensen actually was driving with Larry that year. And then I think because um, um, the disco duck had ended up with that – it was an XHRT car. Right, yeah. And he wanted to drive it. And then I think Larry probably suggested to Jensen who, that maybe he should get me to drive the car with him. And that's how I met the guy. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, he was a beauty. He lived in that great big Aspro house up on the top of the hill at the top of Valinda. Beautiful old big mansion of a place. And uh, he had an office, I can't think of her name now, but she was a beauty. She ran the empire. And um, Bruce Garrett, who'd worked for Liz Small, was working for me at the time. And he was sort of building the cars and doing the maintenance and one thing and another. And... Um, We'd get all the bills ready and then she'd ring me up and I'd go up there and I'd get paid and then I'd come back and we'd work some more. It was one of those businesses that it was probably very um, asset poor but very cash flow positive. Yeah. <laughs> so I can imagine the disco doors were opening and shutting and the money was coming and going. Anyway, um, I could, look, to be honest, I quite enjoyed my time with him. He could not drive very well. But he, he did okay for a amateur. The hair would have got in the way, surely. Well, no, that, that was all part. Of, no, that was all part of his persona. I didn't mind that. But he would at least do when we were trying to help him with his driving skills. He would at least do what you tell him, which sometimes was to the detriment of what you told. I remember once, I forget where we were. I think it might have been. Actually, it must have been at Bathurst. And I said to him something about some breaking point somewhere. I'd been watching him, and he was just breaking far too early because. You know, there was no data in those days. You no, just had no to computers. visually yeah. have a look and see how it worked. And I suggested to him he perhaps should go to this point on the track. And I think I must have marked something somewhere and said, when you get there, break there, don't break there. And, of course, I went back and watched. He came flying down. I'll never forget. He just broke straight there and just disappeared into the bush. <laughs> I remember that vision, actually. I think it nearly wiped out John Harvey at the end of the straight there as well. Someone yeah, but anyway, no, look, that was all good. And in terms of, I mean, Alan Brown was just a general all-round good guy. Alan Brown had his business, liked motor racing. Um, and as I say, Peter Jensen, I, I quite enjoyed his company. Just when he was living on top of the Windsor, you go up there and have a couple of Chardonnays or a couple of Reds with the good old brigade, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, that was good. Uh, yeah, because you guys drove together, I think, the last Group C Bathurst, the Cadbury Schweppes car in, I think it was 84, you, you yeah, guys correct. drove together. That's yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So you, there was a few guys along the way that, I mean, I remember you drove with Terry Finnegan there a couple of times. Terry Finnegan, and, yeah, we finished, I think, 8th or 9th for the... Yeah, the Food Town. Yeah, the Blue Food Town Pomodoro. Pomodoro. That's yep, right. Yep. Uh, Actually, now Lenore, Lenore Finnegan, Terry's wife, she was the team manager, right? 
she was an absolute doozy. They need more like her, you know. You never cross Lenore, no matter what you did. Right. Yeah. Did you find out that in a bad way? Or? Well, no, not a bad oh, way, but she was a very forceful personality. And, you know, Terry was such a nice, quiet sort of bloke, and Lenore would just tell you exactly was. And I'll never forget it was the – I reckon it was probably when the rain was absolutely pouring down and the car was reasonably, reasonably well prepared, but none of those cars had good wipers or things and sort of the radios would never work. And Anyway, I remember – I must have been, I don't know, we were going okay, and I'm blazing down the track, and I'm going, and I've got on the radio, and I said, because you spoke to no, no one else, right? So she was on the radio. Yeah, she was yeah. on the radio. Oh, yeah, shit, yeah. And I said, I can't see. Am I allowed to swear here? Go on. I said, I said, Lenore, I can't see anything. And she said, shut the fuck up and drive the car. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that you swore. <laughs> no, she did. <laughs> That's a, that's a way to remember your Bathurst mission from 1992 <laughs> through the rain, isn't yeah. it? Well, you did have John Andretti to turn up in crutches one yeah, year as well. So that was, that's a famous one that people talk about. Yeah. Oh, well, what happened? Of course, I thought I'd get Mario out to drive. A lot of people don't know that bit. They just remember the Andretti oh, bit. I've still you, got the letter upstairs, you, you, actually. You were going for Mario. You were going for the Grand Pooh Bar. Well, you I were, figured for it. we were out in the commercial business. We needed, you know, uh, you know, whilst you know, my name I thought was vital to the whole thing, no, I thought, you know, perhaps yeah. Andretti could tidy it up a little bit. Yeah, just lift it a little bit. A little yeah. bit, yeah. Anyway, so what happened? I wrote to him and he wrote back, uh, or sorry, I'd say his assistant wrote back saying that whilst he – had examined the team and thought it was a first-class operation. He couldn't wait to get here. But unfortunately, but he happened to have a nephew who might be able to come. So he, he sort of just dobbed him in and yeah, said which he was John who came. And um, actually, a very nice person, actually. Anyway, what happened? He blazed around and um, crashed. Mm. Mm. But didn't you pick him up from Sydney Airport? And oh, he's he, on crutches. He, he rolls out in crutches, <laughs> crutches that you didn't know and about? And no, he rolled out in crutches. He said, I'll be okay. <laughs> Well, he, he's sadly passed away in more recent years, but... I only heard that. Someone yeah. t- told me that the other day. Actually. Yeah, he sadly was ill, but he's forever in Australian racing history, not just because he drove with you at Bathurst. He won the first IndyCar race He did race win the, the first Indy. Oh, yeah. I remember that. We were sitting up there because Cummins were one of our major sponsors for many, many, many years in that first Indy race. I remember we were sitting up in the suite watching, and I said to someone, I said, John Andretti's going to win. No, someone said to me, John Andretti's going to win this race. I said, fair dinkum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, forever linked together exactly. in history. You've got to dig out that letter of Mario. Oh, no. That'll be cool. Yeah, yeah, that's that that's really cool. I yep. love that. Um, there was a couple more from, from some fans. Um, Saren's a regular listener viewer. How did the partnership with Valvoline start? Because you and Valvoline, such a long, long – and the guys like Cummins and Repco, long histories with those. But Valvoline, where did that all start? Why did, well, that, why did that start and why did it stay for so long? Well, it originally started through our dealership, our Nissan dealership in, um, in Glen Waverley. Um, Michael Porter, who was the MD of Valvoline at the time, was out bashing around the, the traps looking for business. And I think we were with Castrol – at the time, and he just walked in cold to our place. As see, back in those days, <clears throat> the the people that did things did things rather than sat on desks and gave orders. Mm. I mean, he could have got a rep to go into that, but he realised he could go out there and try and get drum up some business. And the guy, I just liked him. He was sort of forthright, bit of a, actually he played uh, footy for Hawthorne. He played in there. Grand, well, he played in the, one of the grand finals. But anyway, that aside, he came in and we spoke about things and we did the deal and that was that. But all that just sort of grew from there because um, 
I had quite a strong relationship in the car industry, sort of in Victoria and certainly a little bit in the state as well. And I was able to introduce quite an amount of business to the Valvoline brand in terms of, of dealership activity. Mm. And in that sort of, I got to know a few of the Valvoline people in the US through Michael Porter. And then Peter Besgrove, who then took over his position when Michael Porter retired, um, we sort of just knew those people and it just rolled on and we had quite a good relationship. Um, and the thing that I found really rewarding dealing with them, like they loved they loved a bit of fun, as we do, and whilst the Yanks were quite prim and proper, they could you could still get away with a fair bit of of humour, for the want of a better word, in those areas. And we used to have some some um, some great uh, trips to the Indy racing in the US, like a group of dealers from Australia, Michael Porter and the other Valvoline people from around the world would host those and we'd go on those trips and meet all the US people and... Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what happens on tour stays on tour. Oh, is that no, the, there's nothing untoward. Oh, no, no, no. no. That's the key that I don't think so many people, particularly young drivers and people in the sport, see stickers on cars and and have a one-dimensional view. But it's the relationships and the value that you can bring. Great that your cars are on television or that they're winning or going well or that you've got a, a driver with a nice personality or things like that. But it's it's the underpinning, it's the business element. That's what you've always been really good at is to – to link the other bits together. So that's how those relationships last for so long. Yeah, look, Aaron, I mean, you know, it's the old Bible, isn't it? Do unto others you would have them do unto you. And it's everything, look, to be honest, like I said at the start, my whole attitude, not every day is a bed of roses, but if most times you can make it that and help make it that for, for people around you and, and share a bit of mirth and humour with them, and sort of make them involved in what you do. Um, you know, I just think that's worked. And I've been able to – and, and look, like I say, we have a bit of fun, but we know the rules as well. So, you know, I'm very fortunate that I've got that sort of knack in my nature, I suppose. Mm. What's next? What are we going to do next? What's next? I mean, obviously, with what's going – you've got – I don't know how you're going to fit more stuff in this building. You've got – S5000 cars everywhere, there's TCR cars everywhere, there's Trans Am cars, there's heaps going on with obviously the ARG side of things now, the race element with supercars. You don't look like you're slowing down, mate. I mean, you, you, but why you love you? this. Well, true. What else are you going to do? Well, the only thing I would do if I didn't do this as much as I do, I would concentrate more on my harness racing mm. um, activity. But to be honest... I've seen too many people do things that they enjoy doing and then because they reach a certain age or a certain this or a certain that, they oh, we should retire this. They're no sooner gone than they wish they were back. Mm. Um, and it's not like um, I don't enjoy doing what I do. I'm so, so fortunate to have reasonably good health. Um, I can still have a beer and waffle a bit of crap with my friends. <laughs> um, and I'm... And as I say, can share my workday with people whose company I enjoy. And certainly when we've got to do the official type um, sponsorship things, do it with people whose company I also enjoy. So I've no reason to, to change anything I do. But as I said before, to me, it's been really so good to have Barry. Um, not that I haven't got good people. I've got great people here. But the fact is that he understands how I think and the, how the business – because you need more than 
smart engineers and mechanical people. You need personalities who can sort of build those deals or expand on the deals that we've put into place. And fortunately, he is able to do that. I mean, not not everyone probably not everyone likes me. Not everyone will like him, but he's got a lot more positive, and I think I got a lot more positive than negative. So, do what you do. If you're happy with it, keep doing it. What do you see as the future for racing with the supercar stuff and the TCR stuff? And obviously, there's the sale, there's the involvement that you guys have in all that. What do you see as the next little chapter of of the sport? Okay, well, the reason we got involved in the ARG activities for a start was, I mean, we'd been in the supercars forever and a day, uh, and then I just could not afford... Well, sorry, I could afford it, but I just was not prepared to continue investing um, substantial sums of money when I could see that there was a better way to do that. Um, and that's why we then decided to go... But also, I wanted to make sure... To be honest... My be- the the form of motor racing I like the best is sprint cars, but yeah, I really talking. I really feared because of the workforce we've got and what we do, we just couldn't all of a sudden say we're not in business anymore, mm. and that's why the AAG thing appealed to me. Those TCR cars were were, were reasonably competitive and reasonably cost efficient, but then of course what happened the five thousands, Brian Boyd had spoken to us about. Um, assisting with the build of those cars. I mean, everyone had good ideas, but no one had really put their, their other than Brian, no one had put any money up to get it to happen or, or used any real um, uh, motorsport skills to do so. So when we decided to do that, then that, of course, chunked in. And then, of course, along the way, then the Trans Am cars came in, so we were just going along swimmingly. But my view all the way through was to get the motor racing and I don't say this lightly, but the professional aspect of motor racing together. Mm. So ARG, supercars, um, probably the Porsche situation in some ways because there's a bit of that in the professional side. Don't leave behind the people that want to go to the club racing and do all that because, but you need a professional level of motorsport to then have the other because it won't have it unless there is. Mm. And I would have loved from day one to have been able to put the, the ARG business together with supercars. We tried. We had discussions, but they didn't eventuate. Um, Brian Boyd and myself had looked at the, the purchase of, of, the, of the Archer business some years ago, but that never happened. But anyway, the opportunity came along now to do it. And I just see it's a, a great, you know, this really is a great opportunity for everybody in Australian motorsport to benefit by getting together the professionalism that's required to get those um, categories into give their really good exposure to motorsport in general so as more people will want to come and be involved. It's very simple. Okay, so bringing whatever fences there were down. So now you can have cross, you know, whether it's a S5000 at the Gold Coast or that's here right. or there, you can yeah. pretty much mix and match now the the toolkit of all the categories I mean, of cars. I mean, certain cars and certain categories will suit certain, suit certain circuits, mm. and you've got to work all that out. But I just think that if if you can get this to work together, then to me, I just can't see any negatives. Hey, this won't be easy sailing because everyone wants to have two bobs worth and this and that. The fact of the matter is it is doable so long as that the people that are investing in getting it to work can work together and get it to happen. If Gen 3 supercars goes well, if it's cost-effective, if it's all the things that 
now tick the boxes. You've got to be very careful with that word if. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. But could you could you ever see a day where GRM could go back to do supercar as well as the other things? Aaron, look, all I, all I know is that we are in the motor racing business and clearly you can see this, you can see what's around you, you can look out the back. Mm. I mean, we're not going anywhere and if there was a sensible business opportunity to, to race billy carts, <laughs> we would do so because that's what we want to do. Mm. Um, but whether that encompasses a return for us as a team to supercars, that's only in the future. You never know. You no, never that's know. right. You never do know. Just ring Chrysler. They'll ring Volvo. They might get onto someone else. Well, and no, who knows no, what we no. Want maybe you've got to go somewhere else. Who knows? Yeah, you never know. You never you know. You never, ever do know. Before we finish, guys, you've done a few top 10 shootouts in your time up at Bathurst. We have a top 10 shootout on the V8 Sleuth podcast that we do. Mm-hmm. It's just a fancy word association game. I'll list a few things, people, places. You give me the first word or two that comes into your head. Right. Unfiltered. Don't think about it. Just no, let it fly. No, no. All right. Bathurst. Excitement. Ooh, nice. Good start. You're out of the gates well. Volvo. Absolutely very, very rewarding. Oh, you want one word, don't rewarding. you? Rewarding. Yeah. There's your word. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. No, you can have a few to warm up. Scott McLaughlin. A bloody good bloke. Garth Tander. Very, very astute. Astute. Ooh, nice. Monaro. Fun. Jason Barguana. How good's that? (laughs) (laughs) Probably three octaves higher is probably required, but we know what you meant. Uh, Tony Cochran. I love him. (laughs) Love? Is that the word? Love? Why do you love Tony Cochran? Why do you love Tony Cochran? Because I do. He did a lot of good things. He did a lot of great things. He burnt plenty along the way, but uh, he got the result. And let me tell you right now, Supercars would not be what supercars are today if Tony Cochran hadn't been the person that he was. You can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs. Exactly the, right. The description. Uh, Peter Jansen. <laughs> Twin sisters. <laughs> Peter Adderton. Oh, smart. Right. One to finish. Think about this one if you need to. Barry Rogers. I love him. Hang on, you've got two with love here. I don't care. I do love okay, him. You're allowed to you're allowed to love multiples. You're Good. allowed to love multiples. Gary, thank you so much for sitting down <laughs> and having welcome. a chit chat. I hope it hasn't hurt the brain too hard. I hope we haven't asked too many hard questions. Um, it's been a real pleasure. I love what you bring to the sport. I love what your team does. I love what you've done over the journey and for hosting us today. We really appreciate it. And there's a few cool trophies here that I might have to accidentally take out otherwise. Yeah. But uh, yeah, well you're very, you, very welcome, Aaron. Mate, thank you for sitting there with us. Good stuff. We uh, and to all the listeners and viewers, whatever we've got, I'm onto the iPod. Is it iPod? Podcast iPod. Oh, podcast. I think they're phased out the iPod these days, but I think you're catching. I'm learning. You see, I, I think you're catching. I'm this on, is, you're on you. the way. Well you're, done. You're becoming technological. Good. A big thank you to Gary Rogers and the whole GRM team for making us so welcome when we recorded with Gary very, very recently. It was really cool to sit down with him and talk about so many of those things. I feel like we could have been there for a week because there's so many things to chat about with Gary. He's so uh, open and uh, there's so much stuff to talk about. So a big thank you again to him. Now, you might have heard during the chat that there was references to recording a video of the chat and Gary referenced it in a few spots. 
We did film this chat. We get asked a lot by our listeners, when are we going to do some video podcasts that people can watch? Well, the good news is for this one, we've got it on tape, not just the audio, but the video as well. So we're going to craft this together and put it on our YouTube channel, which is VH Sleuth. So follow us on YouTube. Uh, We're going to start to grow that part of things in the future. So this will be the podcast audio, but you'll get to see us. You'll get to see the surroundings at GRM. Uh, We're going to put a pile of beautiful old stills in there to illustrate some of the things that are discussed. So we'll let you know through the podcast and also through the website and our socials when that's live on YouTube in the upcoming weeks. Uh, I mentioned at the start, bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au. Christmas is coming. There's plenty of new stock. There's some good old favourites. There's prints. There's DVDs with full Bathurst 1000 races uh, from the 70s, 80s and 90s right up to 1996, which has just been released. So jump in there. Grab yourself an item or two. Save on some shipping. Buy a bunch of stuff. Put it all together. We'd be happy for you to do that. Uh, Sign up to our newsletter is our regular way of talking to our mailing list. A couple of times a week we put out emails that give you links to our latest stories and articles on our website, uh, some advice on some new offers that are coming and also some of the new products in our online store. Uh, We love the socials, we love what you do there, we love connecting with our listeners there, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Please leave a review for our podcast, tell us all the great things you love about the podcast, subscribe too so then you don't miss an episode and I've got to say a big thank you to all of our listeners who have helped propel us into the top 100 of Australian made podcasts on the National Podcast Ranker. For a little motorsport podcast that's independently produced and created, that's a massive achievement, but it's a massive achievement for you, for our listeners. Thank you for listening to what we put out. We really appreciate it. We can't do it without you. Speaking of what we're putting out every week, Castrol Motorsport News Podcast with Andrew Van Leeuwen and Stefan Bartholomeus. Uh, Tuesday next week it's going to come up. We decided to tweak it. We were doing it Thursdays, but on weekends after supercar rounds, while the stuff's fresh and there's plenty to talk about, That'll be Tuesdays, and Repco Supercars Weekly will be on Thursdays, just to swap it around. But, of course, once racing uh, stops, we'll we'll spin it back around. But nevertheless, it doesn't matter. You're going to get plenty of podcast gear every week to hear all the latest about motorsport, whether it's the Castrol Motorsport News Pod, the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco, or Repco Supercars Weekly. Anyway, that's it. Done. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Gary Rogers on the V8 Sleuth Podcast. Next Wednesday, it is our special Repco Bathurst 1000 preview edition. So many people love to listen to this one uh, on the drive up to Bathurst. We'll run the ruler over the entire field, all the drivers, all the cars, all the stats, all the bits you need to know ahead of a big six-day Repco Bathurst 1000. We'll chat to you then. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number 2, and oil, and find out.